Pastor Paul, and we are so thankful that you have joined us here for this Good Friday communion service. So in much the same way as we are huddled in homes all across Tallahassee and even maybe further preparing to to celebrate communion together, we have to remember that over 2,000 years ago, 12 men gathered with their teacher to celebrate Passover on a Thursday night in Jerusalem. Now, of course, the teacher was Jesus, and these men were his disciples, and we have to put 
ourselves in their shoes tonight because their excitement by this point in the week was peaking. They had just been a part only four or five days before of this glorious triumphal entry. Their master and teacher had just raised Lazarus from the dead, and all of Jerusalem was a buzz, and there was an expectation that now, finally, their patience was going to be rewarded. Now, finally, after three years of back-breaking ministry with Jesus, finally, finally, these disciples were going to assume their rightful place in the kingdom of God. This was the time that Jesus was going to overthrow the Romans. This was the time that Jesus was going to set up his throne in Jerusalem. And and in fact, the disciples were so sure about what was going to happen. Luke tells us that right before this Passover meal, as they're lounging around, these same disciples are arguing about who was going to be the greatest in this kingdom. Not just great, merely great, but in fact, the greatest. Now think about how you have felt so many times on the eve of something amazing happening in your life. Maybe it was a dream trip or a promotion or a graduation or marriage or birth of a child. And think about the exhilaration that you feel in those moments. And that is the disciples on this evening. And the reason it's so important, though, that we put ourselves in their shoes is that we can better understand their utter personal devastation as their dreams are shattered, as their lives are turned upside down, as their souls are rendered into all in the space of just a few hours. We have to go there. And sometimes we don't like going there. We're not a culture that's, um, that's drawn to lament and mourning and grieving before the Lord. But we have to go there with the disciples tonight. Or we're not going to feel the full weight of what Jesus then did for them. Or what he then does for us. So our plan tonight, as we're together over this next hour or so, is to get up close and personal with the story of the disciples, to see their despair, to see their failures, to feel their loss, and then to see ourselves in their stories. And then we're going to share in the cup and the bread together, and we are going to ask Jesus to reveal himself anew as our only hope in life and in death. Let's pray and commit this time that we have together. Heavenly Father, this is an evening where we want to be sober-minded about who we are and about the world and about the devastating effects of sin and about our own brokenness and about the desperateness we all feel the wholeness that we all long and yearn for, that this is not the way things are supposed to be. And Lord, we pray that in this evening you would stir up our hearts again to remind us that Jesus, you are our only hope in life and in death. Lord, we want to proclaim your name tonight as we come together as your family around your table Lord, do a great work of grace in our hearts tonight. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.
have your Bibles there at home, you can turn them in them to Matthew chapter 26. And if not, we have the, we'll have the words displayed here for you. But there, there's three sorts of dynamics going on here around the table and around this last night of Jesus's life. Failure, abandonment, 
and disownment. They're all in the mix here, and we're not just talking about Judas, because the time, by the time we drop into the story here, Judas is long gone. He's already doing what we know Judas is going to do. But what we're really most interested in is the 11, those who remained, the faithful few, this band of brothers, those who had committed themselves to Jesus. They were there to the bitter end. And we're going to read three excerpts from Matthew. And the first one is going to have to do with this issue of failure. Matthew 26. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I'll go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. We see Jesus here in the garden in what we would call holy despair. See, the weight of the sin of the world is about to be hoisted onto him, and he knows it. The Father is going to turn his face away. The wrath of the God of the universe is going to be poured out upon him. He is going to be cursed by his own Father by being hanged on a tree. So Jesus in his humanity is not anxious to embrace this. Who would? So he asks, Father, please, please take it away. Not once, not twice, but three times. But each time, not my will, Father, but yours. You see, while Jesus is in holy despair, he also has a holy resolve. There is no other way. Now, on the precipice of such terror, Jesus really doesn't ask much of his disciples here. He just says, would you please stay with me? Would you pray with me? Would you pray for me? In other words, would you just be present? All I'm asking is for your companionship, for your spiritual support. I know you can't bear this weight for me, but just be with me. You could say, in a sense, the disciples had one job that night in Gethsemane. Yet not once, not twice, but three times they fall down at their post. Couldn't you stay awake just for one hour, Jesus asked? In other words, there's plenty of time to be sleeping, but I'm about to be executed. And then he says what we can all identify with, can't we, as followers of Christ? So often our spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Now, I'm certain we can all identify with the disciples in this moment. We, like them, have such good intentions. We want to do the right thing. We want to be faithful. We want to grow. We want to pursue holiness. But then what happens? The spiritual buzz wears off. We grow weary. We fail. We stumble and then we sort of half-heartedly pick ourselves up again and we make some more resolutions. You know, next time, Lord, it'll be better. I'll show you this time, Lord. I promise, I pinky promise, it's going to be different this go-around. And maybe, I don't know, that's what the disciples were thinking. Maybe this was running through their minds as they were chastised by their teacher. But in the meantime, as their failure was sort of swirling in their hearts and minds, Judas and the band of soldiers and the religious leaders arrive to arrest Jesus. And what we're going to see is 
simple failure now is ratcheted up a notch into outright abandonment. Let's look back at Matthew 26. At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Now listen to this. Then all the disciples left him and fled. That word fled literally means to vanish instantly. In other words, they didn't saunter off. They didn't mosey off. They, they didn't drift off. They literally disappeared. They melted into the safety of the night. You know, it's one thing for Oaks to, to fail someone. And it might mean in failing them, we disappoint them. But you know, to ghost someone to abandon them, to actually leave physically, spiritually, emotionally at their greatest hour of need, we know, don't we? Because we've been there. That's particularly painful. Now, the reason they run is simple enough. It's understandable enough, right? They fear death. They fear imprisonment. They fear torture, punishment, ostracization. I mean, heaven help us, Pastor Paul. These men have families. Don't we have some pity for them? Yet had Jesus not repeatedly put himself in harm's way for them, had he not poured his blood, sweat, and tears literally, figuratively into their lives for these three years, time and time again, and you would think that maybe some of this would have rubbed off on them, that this would embolden them, that this would create in them a, a heart of gratitude. But the only people emboldened on this evening are the people who want to kill Jesus. You know, we can learn something from the disciples here, right? Because we can see ourselves right in their story. You see, when you and I fail, we have to resist the strong temptation to run. Because the very worst thing that we can do when we fail is to run. Because instead of coming to Jesus... We run away from him in, in shame and in fear and anxiety. And when we run away from Jesus, we're abandoning our only safe haven, aren't we? We abandoned the only hope and cure for our souls. And so it was with the disciples on that night 2,000 years ago. You had to know, right, that Peter was especially feeling this issue of, of disappointing Jesus, of, of failing, of abandoning, of running away. I mean, after all, didn't Jesus look at him and say, Peter, Petra, upon this rock I will build my church? Peter, leader of the disciples. And so Peter does an interesting thing here as we move through the story. He sticks in the shadows He's, he's run away, but he sort of slinks back and sort of tails at the end of this entourage that's going towards the high priest's house. Maybe, just maybe, instead of failure or abandonment, maybe, just maybe, Peter is thinking he will finally have his shot at redemption. And can't you just identify with Peter at this point? where you have failed the Lord three, four, five, a hundred times, you've made the same resolutions, you've, you've made the same pleas, you've made the same bargains, you've made the same deals, and this time it will be different. I just know it will. But so often it isn't. And it wasn't for Peter. So let's look at his disownment in Matthew 26. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard and a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him. And she said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. 
And after a little while, while the bystanders came up and said to Peter, certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. You know, when friends let us down, when they fail us, when they disappoint us, when they don't live up to their word, you know, that stings, there's no question. And when friends ghost us, when they disappear, when they're not there in, their, in our hour of greatest need, you know, we know that is particularly painful. Yet, in many ways, you can come back from those things. Not, maybe not the easiest, but over time you can. Because those are sins of, of omission. And so there are apologies and renewed communications and coffees and dinners and forgiveness extended and and, and forgiveness offered and received. And, you know, you can recover from things like abandonment and disappointment and failure. But the one thing that is often irreparable, is it not, is a full-on disownment. A full-on denial. Someone who doesn't just disappear from our lives, but publicly, maybe on social media, maybe to their coworkers, maybe to their friends, who not only disappears, but they disavow us. Not just our, our friendship, but our personhood. Those people who shake the dust off their feet and completely disown us. Telling everybody else about it in the process, making it very publicly public, saying, I never knew him. I could care less what happens to him. Have you ever been on the receiving end of that? See, that's not just a sin of omission, right? But it's a sin of commission. It's just a willful act, deliberately thought out and executed, not once, not twice, but three times. And of course, this is Peter. Now, when Peter realizes what he has done, you can just sense the angst in this passage. It's almost like he's realized he's committed a crime of passion. It's like when you have a nightmare at night, something terrifying, and you wake up and you realize it's just a dream, and how do you feel? You are greatly relieved, are you not? Except Peter doesn't wake up. He realized from his perspective, from his human perspective, that he has done something utterly irreparable, and it tells us here in the text that he wept bitterly. Literally, he's coming unglued. He's no longer an integrated whole of body, soul, and spirit. He is disintegrating. He's full of despair. He's full of agony. A question tonight for Oaks. It's hard to ponder. It's hard to ask, but it's so necessary that we do. Where do you see yourself in this story? When it comes to failure, and abandonment, and disownment. And I'm not speaking of those things done to you. I'm speaking about those things done in the context of your relationship with the Lord. In what ways do you find yourself, just like these men, failing in these very same ways? That's where we want to go. That's where we want to park it here for these next couple of minutes. As Pastor Joe and the worship team lead us in this next song, I want us to all, where we are, before the Lord to reflect and meditate on the words that we will be singing. Here are just a couple. For it was my sin that nailed him there. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice Not just the mocking voice of the crowds or the religious leaders, but my mocking voice. 
It was me, Lord, who was calling out among the scoffers. And we can echo, as this song does, why should I? Even through all this, why should I gain his reward, his death for me? To this, I cannot give an answer. So, folks, let's go to that place trusting that as we do, God will meet us in a powerful way. Let's worship together now.
folks, that this story that we've been reading together these last 40 minutes was, was actually a movie we were watching. This would be the time in the movie where these subtitles would flash across the bottom of the screen and it would say something like, three hours earlier. See, it was at that time, three hours earlier, that Jesus was gathered with the eleven. Now, this was before the failures, before the betrayals, before the denials, before the disownment that we've been reading about. And here, Jesus says this in Matthew. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. What Jesus says in just a few words here is, is simple enough, but it's the most profound thing that the God of universe could ever tell us. He says, I'm going, disciples and church, I'm going to make a covenant with you. And this is a, a life and death bond. This is a one-way covenant. This is something I'm initiating with you. I'm going to die, and I'm going to shed my blood. I'm going to be broken in my body as a sacrifice in your place. I'm going to be cursed for you so that you no longer have to be cursed by sin. I'm going to be cursed so that you can be forgiven of your sins. And, and one day when I'm gone, I'm, I'm back in heaven, you're going to come together and you're going to remember this night. And you're going to take this bread and you're going to take this wine and you're going to do it in order to remember me. You are going to remember what I am about to do for you. Now, just as important as it is, for what Jesus is doing here is when he is doing it. See, one thing that Jesus makes crystal clear all throughout his ministry is that he is the one in charge of his life and death, right? No one takes his life from him apart from his sovereign will. How many times does he tell us in the Gospel of John, it is not yet my hour, it is not yet my hour, and then finally, it is my hour. Jesus is in control of what's happening to him from start to finish. And this is why this is significant. This means that Jesus makes this covenant with his 11 in full knowledge of what they are about to do. In full knowledge that they are about to fail him utterly in full knowledge that they are about to abandon him completely, in full knowledge that they are going to literally disown him. Jesus, in full knowledge of all of that, is going to die for the very men who will let him down at his greatest moment of need. In, in, in church, here's what's so important. Jesus didn't make this covenant with them in spite of what he knew they would do. He made this covenant with them precisely because he knew what they would do. And if that sounds just too crazy or too otherworldly, it is. It's nothing we've never seen the like of it in all of human history. You see, any other religion, any other philosophy, any other approach to life would look at this abandonment and failure and disownment and figure out how do we fix this? How do we 
start the reclamation project? How do we get from here to here? What steps must we do? And Jesus says, that's never going to work. The only thing that's going to work is I'm going to make my covenant with you. It's a life and death bond. It's one way. It, it cannot be altered or changed. And this church is what we know as the gospel. It's just as true for us now as it was for them then. And if we know Christ, we are taking the bread and wine together tonight to remember to celebrate, to renew our hearts in this amazing good news. The Apostle Paul says that when we are to take of the bread and the wine, we are not to take of it in an unworthy manner. And let me explain what, what this means and doesn't mean. It does not mean that we have to prove ourselves worthy or that we have had to have a good track record this week or a clean slate before we can take these elements. When we do that, we deny the very gospel we proclaim. When we say, I, you know, I, I failed and I've abandoned and I've disavowed, but, but just a little bit, not that big a deal. No, 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 no. That disavows our, our gospel that we preach and that we cling to. See, that makes us unworthy when we come in that spirit. See, to be worthy means paradoxically, you and I have to confess tonight our unworthiness. We have to say, I am the betrayer. I am the denier. I'm the abandoner. I am the disavower. I am the one who fails. And this table, you see, is open to all who in their unworthiness are clinging to Christ. So as, as Pastor Joe leads us into this communion song, just take a moment to do a couple of things. Number one, make sure to procure your own elements at home. Approximate the bread and the juice for the wine as, as, as best you can. But God knows your heart. That's the most important thing. Parents, what a, what a great time to celebrate this with your family, to explain it to your children, this bizarre thing that you are doing as you're watching the service on a live stream, on a computer, on a TV, and you're taking bread and juice, and it, and it is bizarre, and that's the point. What an opportunity to create a memory. What an opportunity to explain the gospel. Couples, families, roommates, take together, pray together. And let me just say, if you were by yourself tonight, just know that you are not alone. Your brothers and sisters are celebrating this with you as your family. And we look forward, do we not, Four Oaks, to that time we'll be right back in this place sharing it together in person. But for now, the Spirit of Christ unites our hearts. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we come to the table now, Lord Create that vivid sense in our hearts that it is here, only here, that we find hope in this life. It is here and only here in your death for us on that Good Friday 2,000 years ago that was so terrible yet was so good. Lord, it's in you alone that we find grace and mercy and forgiveness. And so we receive that by confessing our unworthiness. So Lord, bless this time now as we share in this feast, in this table with God's people together. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.
salvation held out to drink Jesus mystery Christ has died and Christ is risen Christ will come again Christ has
hope and pray one day, maybe many years from now, we'll look back on this time and remember it for the unique, special thing that it was. That absent in flesh, we are together through the power of Christ's blood and his Holy Spirit. Folks, we'll be right back here Sunday, 10 a.m., as we celebrate Easter together. But until then, go in the peace and in the hope offered through these words from Hebrews chapter 13. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Go in peace. We love you, church.